Good morning, everybody. Uh, welcome to First Covenant Church. Um, we have, the past couple of weeks, been in a series on the book of Ecclesiastes. Um, and, you know, if you've missed the last couple of weeks, those were both kind of introductory messages for the series that um, together should give you a pretty good overview of, of the book and how to read the book. And so if you miss any of those and you want to catch up, you can go to our website or through our church app and get that. Um, as I was pulling this series together, uh, I had in mind a couple of people in particular who I wanted to make sure had, um, had a place, had a time to, to preach in this series. Uh, one of the, the positives of, of Craig being on sabbatical is you get to hear from a number of people who um, don't get as many opportunities throughout the year. And so I know Josh and I have appreciated you know, the additional opportunities to teach. Um, but as I was pulling this series together, there were two people in particular I wanted to make sure had an opportunity to preach in this series. One is Pastor Dale, and uh, Dale Dahlman is the pastor of Esperanza Covenant Church, and Dale is going to be um, bringing God's word to us in a few weeks, um, sometime next month. Um, you know, he's uh, taught a Sunday school class, and even though he's the pastor of Esperanza that meets in our building, he's, uh, he's integral to what we do as a church as well, so I'm excited for that. And then in particular, next week, uh, we have one of our ministry partners who's going to be preaching. We have supported the work of Derek and Alicia DeCam, who work with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship uh, for a number of years. I don't even know how many years it's been. Eight, nine, ten years? Yeah, it's been a long time. Uh, and they've been members of this church for, the, for about that long. And so I'm excited that Alicia is going to be bringing God's word to us next week. Uh, and she's going to be preaching out of Ecclesiastes chapter 3. And so I encourage you to come back for that. Um, she's a great communicator of God's word, and uh, um, I'm excited for that. So please come back next week to hear that. Uh, with that, let's bow our heads one more time, and let's pray um, as we open God's word this morning. Gracious God, we thank you for this day, and we thank you uh, for the power of your word, and as we already read in Second Timothy, the power of the gospel in our midst. And even as we open a book like Ecclesiastes, uh, we're reminded in every verse of our need for a Savior, uh, of our need for a Savior to rescue us from the brokenness, the uncertainty that comes with, with this world, this side of Genesis chapter 3 and the fall of man. The brokenness that affects every square inch of this world and the brokenness that you, uh, by Jesus Christ, seeks to redeem. And yet we live in this in-between time of, of, yes, Jesus has come, he's brought redemption, and yet we wait for the full consummation of that in the new heavens and the new earth. And so we have these longings and, and desires and often frustrations in this world. And yet, Lord, we know that we can only be satisfied in Jesus. And so I pray, Lord, as we open your word, that you would speak to us by your Holy Spirit. That you would encourage us and strengthen us and confront those areas of our life that we have yet to hand over to you. So Lord, help us to see you 
this morning in all of your glory as we open your word together. It's in your precious and holy name that we do pray. Amen. Uh, Toward the end of the 19th century, a Swedish businessman named Al sat down to his traditional Swedish breakfast of, of kippers, eggs, and bacon. And as he sipped his coffee, he began to look through the morning newspaper. And to his surprise, uh, there he was on the front page. Uh, But even more surprising, the article was an obituary. The newspaper had confused him with his brother who had just died in the East Indies. So as he sat there and read his own obituary, it's got to be a bizarre experience if there ever was one. As he sat there and read his obituary, his uh, sense of surprise turned to disgust. He read phrases like merchant of munitions, dealer of destruction, and peddler of death. It was all about him. This businessman had been conducting his business and living his life largely for himself and for his own selfish gain. And now he was confronted with the prospect of a disturbing legacy if his life continued on this journey, on this path. This true story confronted me with my legacy. What would my legacy be about? Would the people who knew me best speak of a life lived mostly for myself? Or would they speak of a life lived for the glory of God and for the love of others? What do you think your obituary would say if you were in his place? As I studied Ecclesiastes 2, I wondered the same thing about our preacher. Uh, Because especially in this passage, the preacher's life seems to parallel this Swedish businessman in some ways. As we talked about in our first message in the series, uh, this preacher of Ecclesiastes is experimenting with life, and he's trying to discover if there's anything lasting or satisfying in this world. And he continues his journey here in chapter 2 by testing pleasure. So why don't you go ahead and open your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 2, if you haven't done so already. We're going to look at the first 11 verses together. This is God's word to us, Ecclesiastes 2. I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved to be hevel. Laughter, I said, is madness. What does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly, my mind still guiding me with wisdom. And I wanted to see what was good for people to do under the heavens during the few days of their lives. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired male and female singers and a harem as well, the delights of a man's heart. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. And in all of this, my wisdom stayed with me. 
I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor, and this was the reward for all my toil. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was hevel, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. This is the word of the Lord. The preacher wants to learn how his heart will respond to those things under the sun that attempt to pleasure it. And in verse 1, he says, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. So he tells us that what follows is an experiment. Uh, What follows is a deliberate attempt to learn something from personal experience. And in verse 3, he acknowledges that life is short. So he wonders to himself, perhaps the answer to life is to seize the day and to squeeze as much pleasure out of life as possible. And so he sets out to experience the good life. And we find out quickly that this preacher is no lowlife or bum. This is someone with a lot of resources at his disposal. And his pursuit of pleasure is quite sophisticated and wide-ranging. He gives, in, he gives in to every temptation that he faces. He indulges every pleasure that he finds. And by doing so, the Bible raises a question for us in this passage that every human being should ask. Is there anything in this world that can truly satisfy the human heart? And he begins with laughter. Laughter is a wonderful gift. In the next chapter, the preacher will even say there are times when, uh, times under the sun, when the only proper response to something is laughter. Laughter expresses our joy. But even though laughter is good for the soul, it cannot heal us from our afflictions under the sun. The Proverbs tell us, even in laughter, my heart may ache. So the preacher tells us laughter is madness. Then the preacher tests alcohol. He says elsewhere in the book, drink wine with a joyful heart, and that wine makes life merry. But we don't have to look far in the Bible or our personal experience to know that alcohol is a mocker, a brawler that leads us astray. But beer commercials aren't interested in showing us an AA meeting or a college student hanging over a toilet at three in the morning. The preacher would say that alcohol can be a gift, but even when used responsibly, it leaves us thirsty. I need to pause for a moment and point out something that perplexed me as I studied this passage, and maybe you noticed it as we read it. Um, Verse 3, he says, as he was pursuing pleasure, his mind still guided him with wisdom. And in verse 9, he says, in all of this, his wisdom stayed with him. Anyone else find this strange? Um, The wisdom that the preacher speaks of is clearly not the wisdom with the fear of the Lord at the beginning of it. The preacher knows the Proverbs, he affirms the validity of the Proverbs, so it's as if he knows what true wisdom is, but then he says, I indulged every pleasure and temptation, but my wisdom, wink, wink, nod, nod, stayed with me. In other words, I think he's being ironic here. So the preacher in this part of his experiment was pursuing the wisdom of the world. Because just as in our world today, wisdom in the preacher's world 
was all about pursuing personal gain and pleasure at all costs. His pleasure fest continues in verse 4 with a list of projects that he took upon himself. And the projects listed here fit what we know of King Solomon and other kings of the ancient Near East. He built houses and vineyards for himself. He built gardens and parks and planted trees in them. One scholar notes the remarkable similarities in some of the words and languages in this passage with Genesis 1 and 2. And the point is, the preacher is not only posing as a king, but also for a moment as God. And he attempts to recreate Eden all for himself. This is what a pursuit of pleasure does to us. It makes ourselves God of the universe. And the whole world revolves around us. And of course, all of these projects required maintenance, and he wasn't about to do all that work himself. So he bought many slaves to care for his property. This man was no slouch. It says he owned more property than anyone in town. He hoarded gold and silver for himself. He had an endless stream of entertainers to fill his senses with beautiful sights and sounds. And he had a large harem of prostitutes at his disposal. And best of all, it was all for him. It's clear by the text, by the number of personal pronouns in this section, that the focus of all of these endeavors was on him. Now there's something I hope you notice. The pleasures the preacher indulges are not all that different from the pleasures that we seek today. He lays out nine basic amusements under the sun. Laughter, alcohol, art, nature, money, music, sex, fame, and work. And here we are about 2,500 years or so later, and we still attempt to satisfy ourselves with many of the same things. You have to admit, though, it's not all that hard to envy a man like this, at least a little bit. I mean, wouldn't you like to be a king or a queen? Just as an old Tom Petty song goes, it's good to be king if just for a while. I bet we all feel that at least a little bit. I mean, you could have others do the dirty work for you. No more mowing the lawn or doing the dishes, cleaning the house or doing the laundry. You'd have more money to do what you enjoy and travel in style to the places you want to see. Any car, beachside villa, private jet, fancy dress, or pair of shoes your heart desired. Wouldn't you like all of that? Now, before you say yes, you need to know the result of the preacher's experiment. In verse 11, he says he surveyed everything. The Hebrew word here is panah. It's to consider, to look something right in the eye, and in this case, to face reality. He wants us to face the reality that he had to face, that the results of his experiment were not pretty. Uh, What happens when we pursue any and every pleasure as our main passion in life? What happens when we live life only for ourselves? Hevel. Meaningless. It's like chasing after the wind. You ever try that? One scholar describes the preacher of Ecclesiastes as a man who had it all, but discovered that having it all nearly destroyed him. You might be quick to dismiss the preacher's experiment as unrealistic. You might argue that none of us has these kinds of resources at our disposal, so how could we possibly indulge in life's pleasures like this preacher? 
But we don't need his resources to live the life he lived. We only need his heart. Because the temptation that the preacher indulges is a temptation for all of us at some level to please ourselves rather than to please God. Finding pleasure will always elude us because to enjoy oneself is to drink in what only the self can provide. Created beings and things only have so much that they can offer us. A video game, and I keep hearing a lot about the the game Fortnite these days, a game might be absolutely mind-blowing and offer many, many levels and upgrades and all of these things. But once the levels are won, the upgrades have been achieved, the person will ultimately, eventually, look for a new game, a better game that comes along, bored with the one that once thrilled them and held their attention for hours at a time. Left to ourselves, our entertainment abilities are substantial, but quite limited. Look around you in the world that we live in. Our world is filled with people who spend so much time striving for things. Consumerism, I would say, is the dominant ideology of our day. And central to consumerism is the quest for pleasure through more possessions and more experiences. And we're constantly bombarded with with the images of the values of this world. Money, power, material possessions, and sex. The heroes of Western culture, celebrities and billionaires, have multiple houses. They accumulate great wealth and are able to buy all the pleasures of life they desire. Pleasure attained through alcohol, sex, multiple residences on, on different continents. Music and art have become the ultimate good of our day. And advertising tells us if you just get a little bit more of these things, you will find contentment. And advertisers create feelings of dissatisfaction in consumers that supposedly only their products can fill. And so we kill ourselves for more. More choices, more experiences, more successes, more money, more stuff. And we're bombarded every day with messages that tell us that more will eventually lead to contentment. If I buy one more video game or one more toy or the latest cell phone, then I'll be content. But more never satisfies. More clothing, more shoes, more status, more recognition, more admiring fans, more Facebook friends, more luxurious vacations. Whatever your more is, it will inevitably leave you feeling empty. Because more never satisfies. It just keeps you longing for more. Phil Riken uh, writes that most Americans today experience more pleasure than most people in the history of the world. Yet in spite of our prosperity, or maybe because of it, we still suffer from poverty of soul. The taste of pleasure has grown our appetite for this world beyond satisfaction. We have more of almost anything today except happiness. Instead of the age of happiness, some are calling our age the age of melancholy. As depression has become so common and rates of suicide among teens and adults are on the rise. 
And maybe none of this is new. Alexis de Tocqueville, a French diplomat and historian in the 1830s, noticed what he called a strange melancholy that haunted Americans in the midst of abundance. And then the Frenchman concluded, the complete joys of this world will never satisfy the human heart. Now, as bleak as all this may seem, we must realize that God is not a spoil sport. He is not trying to take any pleasure away from us. The preacher is not disparaging pleasure or joy or saying that we're not to experience either. In fact, the preacher affirms the value of each of these pleasures he mentions in other places in the book, but only when they're seen in their proper place. God isn't trying to take pleasure away from us, but to give us more. Pleasure is only safe for us when God is there. And this never happens when we take pleasure for ourselves or when we make it the main passion of our lives. The preacher's experiment serves as a warning for us that if we seek pleasure as an ultimate end, we will always come up empty. The pleasure of this life can only be satisfying when we use them in relationship with God and receive them as gifts from God because our pleasures are gifts, not entitlements. And we are called to steward them well. If we were able to find lasting satisfaction in earthly pleasures, then we would never see our need for God. Uh, Maybe this is a big reason why the book of Ecclesiastes is in our Bibles, to show us that satisfaction only comes in God himself. And once we learn how to find our satisfaction in God himself, then all his gifts become the best and truest pleasures. Throughout his ministry, Jesus directed people toward God as the only one who could satisfy him, to satisfy them. Jesus questions our ideas of gain and loss when he says, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? He warns us elsewhere that the earth's treasures can be very beautiful, but they are the kind of which rust and moth destroy. And these kinds of treasures can make us smile, but they can't keep the frowns away forever. Jesus points us to treasures that outlast this life under the sun. Elsewhere, Jesus tells a woman at the well that there is a kind of water that though we drink it over and over again, it can't satisfy us. And remember, he's telling this to a woman who's trying to find satisfaction in sex and relationships. But she's coming up empty. And Jesus tells her there is a different kind of water that would satisfy her thirst and that her taste for other waters would diminish. He was pointing this woman to himself, the only one who could satisfy her thirst. Now, I don't know if... Al, our Swedish businessman, ever discovered the satisfaction that can only be found in Jesus. But his life did change that day that he read his obituary in the morning newspaper. And as you can imagine, the the disparaging words that he read about himself really shook him up. Uh, And that very day, he made a decision. He got in his carriage, he traveled to his office, And he wrote a brand new will, a document that established a foundation. 
And our businessman, Al, is Alfred Nobel. And the foundation he established is the Nobel Foundation. And today, the Nobel Foundation gives out the Nobel Prize, widely regarded as the most prestigious award available in the fields of literature, medicine, physics, chemistry, peace, and economics. He decided that his legacy would be is honoring those who advanced the common good of society. Nobel discovered that living for himself, living life for his own pleasure or gain, was not satisfying. And the preacher of Ecclesiastes discovered this dead-end street for himself, too. And he wants his experience to serve as a warning for you and for me. So remember this, when you get frustrated or sad or angry or disappointed or discontent. Because when you get overwhelmed and you're tempted to wonder why you should even bother with your work or your relationship or your faith, the very fact that you are weary of this life is pointing you to Jesus, the only one who can satisfy your soul. So would you bow your heads and pray with me? Gracious God, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you, God, for the way that this world is, is set up these days. This side of Genesis 3. That life can be challenging and frustrating and, and often tenuous, unpredictable. And yet, God, we're supposed to experience that so that we're driven to you, the only one who can satisfy our souls. And we can battle it, we can fight it in this life, but we will only find rest when we find our rest in you and in what you provide us in this life. And God, I pray that for each and every one of us. Because all of us swim in the waters of consumerism and we can't help but to be affected by that at some level. And so Lord, in any way that we struggle with contentment in this life and we try to fill that contentment with, with pleasure or experiences or more stuff, God, I pray that you would speak your words of truth to us that we will only find satisfaction in you. Lord, I pray for each and every one of us that you would help us to find that satisfaction. Because Lord, I know many of us here today are not finding that satisfaction in you. And that we're not experiencing the abundant life that you promise your children. And I pray, God, that you would help us to to shed all of those things that get in our way of of communing with you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Lord, help us to toss aside anything that, that holds us down or holds us back from you. 
and experiencing you. Lord, in your tender grace and mercy, point out those, those things in our lives so that we may confess them to you. And so that we can shed those things and, and devote our lives and devote our hearts wholeheartedly to you. That we would find and discover that your grace and your mercy and your love are enough. That they're enough to satisfy our souls. Lord Jesus, we thank you for who you are. And for all that you've done for us through your life, death, and resurrection and ascension. And we pray all of these things in your precious name. Amen.